Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our guest today spent 15 years in marketing and communications before stepping into a role as general manager of the Sydney Sixers, just the third female to hold the role as GM of a Big Bash franchise. Also on the board of Judo Australia, she was hugely popular at the Sixers and integral to the team's culture and success, including managing them through the enormous challenges thrown up by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now turning a page and looking ahead to a new adventure, she's taken some time to chat to us today about her experiences. Today's trailblazer is Jodie Hawkins. Hawkins, welcome to Trailblazers. How are you? I'm very well, Steph. How are you? I'm very well, and it's great to see you. You've, I think, since the last time I saw you, had a time for a bit of a holiday. NT, was it? I did. I went to Darwin and then down to Catherine and into Kakadu. It was incredible. I'd never really thought to holiday in the NT. Um, but yeah, I found myself with a bit of time and, and decided it would be great. A, I wanted to go somewhere warm because when you work all summer, you don't get to see as many beaches as you like. Um, Not and sure yeah. how many beaches you saw on the NT. Well, I saw them. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't swimming in them though, but no, I had a great holiday there and then ducked over to, to um, Palm Cove, just north of Cairns for a couple of nights, just for some book reading by the pool and, and now yeah. back and into the lovely Sydney weather. Well, yeah, isn't it just a little bit uh, chilly today? Uh, was that holiday a little bittersweet because it was at the end of a decade or so at the Sydney Sixers. Had you had time or have you had time to process that? Uh, yeah, I think I have. I, I, I'm comfortable that I, I processed it pretty quickly when it all happened. So, but the first thing I did do was book the holiday. I knew when I mm. finished up, I didn't want to be sitting at home um, being upset or worried about what the future held. I knew I wanted to get away immediately, get on that plane and go on a holiday. So I finished on the Friday and went on holidays on the Monday. And it was the best thing I could have done. I just, it really allowed me to unwind, mm. um, especially after the hectic summer that we had. Um, and then come back in the right frame of mind to start looking at what's next. Was it a bit of a shock to you when you found out what was going to happen after all that blood, sweat and tears and an enormously successful stint in your role that it was all going to be over? Uh, yeah, it was a shock. Uh, and, and we'd been discussing the organisational redesign for quite some time, um, but I never had probably considered that it would mean that my role wouldn't exist anymore. Did but you organise yourself into redundancy? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it looks like it, doesn't it? <laughs> no, um, but yeah, so it was a shock to the system, but, you know, Cricket New South Wales, have, they've spent a lot of time really thinking about what is next for the organisation, and it's unfortunate that um, I'm not able to be part of that. Um, but I had an incredible decade there. It was The Sixers has been such a great organisation to work for, to work with. The people there are incredible, as are a lot of people at Cricket New South Wales. So um, I'm truly blessed to have had that time there. Uh, and, you know, it probably was good timing to look at something new. I'm going out off the back of 
the back-to-back uh, Big Bash titles, um, you know, and a really successful women's program as well that I'm exceptionally proud of. So I'm really excited about what's next. Tell me there was a cracking leaving do because <laughs> rumour has it that it went uh, all day and long into the night. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, if there's one thing we had perfected at the Sydney Sixers, it's how to have a good night out. Uh, so, yeah, no, I had a great farewell. Um, I was able to bring together players, um, my staff, my coaching staff, some really key people at Cricket New South Wales. Uh, the, the rest of the organisation came and joined me later that night. Uh, and, yeah, it did kick on, uh, but it was a great way to farewell everyone, just to have all my those people that I've really um, worked with and, and, you know, been in the trenches with over the years. Um, it was great to see all those people there. Now, in sport, we often say that you haven't actually made it until you've been sacked or made redundant. <laughs> and, and most of us, if we hang around long enough, have, have been through that. Was there a robust discussion or a conversation around this? Did you get a chance to talk or was it a, a foregone conclusion by the time it got to that point? Uh, it was a foregone conclusion by the time it got to, to me. So, um, yeah, it was, a, as I said, it was probably a bit of a shock to the system. But um, when you understand, when they explain the full context of what they're trying to achieve, um, I kind of see what they want to do. So I realised there wasn't much of a, a reason to try and convince them otherwise. And it was mm. just up to me to take, to do what I could on the way out to make sure that the, the sixes specifically were set up for success mm. and then look to the future and what's next. And I think the thing when you leave organisations that you've been at for so long, the thing that you fear is is losing contact with the people um, and in the, the time that I've had since I've left, um, that hasn't been the case. I've been really lucky to still keep in contact with players, with staff, with those people that I built those relationships with. So I, I kind of feel I'm still connected a little bit anyway. Mm. Um, and though those sorts, those relationships are the things that I really cherish. Well, those uh, players, particularly uh, some of the Sixers, uh, they went quite public saying they were shocked and, and rattled, Stephen O'Keefe in, in particular. Uh, we, we teach athletes often about trying to build resilience emotionally what did you have to do for yourself to draw on because even if you see it coming or, or you don't it's difficult to prepare for that situation yeah it really is um, and I think for me it was I, need, I knew I needed to switch straight away to thinking about what the opportunity was that had presented itself to me rather than reflecting on what was being taken away so I was really keen to make sure that I changed the way I spoke to myself about it. It was my role that's being made redundant, not not myself specifically. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a personal thing. Um, and I really wanted to make sure what I was doing was looking at the opportunity that that I might come across as opposed to, um, yeah, as I said, what was, what was being taken away. Um, and maintaining those relationships was really key to, you know, being able to talk to everyone, to talk everyone through what had happened. Um, and really still be there to support them. I think because I went through that that grieving process really quickly, mm. um, I wanted to make sure I was then ready, you know, a week later when we told everyone to, to be there to support them because I knew it would hit everyone hard mm. um, as it had hit me hard in the beginning as well. It's interesting. You need to spend your time supporting other people over a decision that's, <laughs> that's happened to you. But uh, that's a, a hallmark of, of what people say about you know, how they felt about you. It was a, a nurturing role as well as a, a GM role. Uh, what have you done with the time since then? You've obviously had your holiday. Have you just been taking stock or did you do the knee jerk, I must find another role immediately type reaction? Uh, no, the, the holiday was to make sure I didn't go down that path <laughs> of I must find another job immediately. Everyone says to you when, you, when you're made redundant, if you can afford to, it's great to take the time to stop. Um, and for me, being at the level that I'm at, I really wanted, I wanted the time to consider what the next role looks like. 
um, what do I want? What do I want to achieve? Um, and so for me, I've, I've taken the time to stop. I haven't rushed into anything. I've had some great conversations and there are some really great opportunities out there. But I've spent my entire summer locked away from my family and friends. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, I'm spending my time reconnecting with those people, enjoying not having to get up to an alarm, um, albeit I'm also not staying in bed till 10 a.m. because that's <laughs> a bit counterproductive as well. But, you know, things like getting back, um, I'm seeing a trainer again, I'm eating better, um, you know, catching up with family and friends, catching up with sort of key contacts and, and maintaining those relationships. That's the thing that's really important to me in this first little period. Mm. And I'm pretty confident the right role will come, um, but I'm also going to enjoy the quiet time, especially after the hectic COVID summer. I hope, you know, the cricket season doesn't look like that again. I hope that's a once in a lifetime experience, but you don't realise how much it takes out of you until you, you stop and you're able to really um, have that rest regenerate and just and breathe again tell you what my wardrobe couldn't cope with another COVID summer seriously oh <laughs> honestly 65 days on the road very few kitchens there were the uber eats account had to be suspended because uh there was a lot of that going on and a lot of detoxing <laughs> oh how absolutely perfect well, good you got the time to do that now um do you have uh, in your mind and it doesn't necessarily need to be in sport a dream job that you thought, oh, I fancy having a crack at that? Um, oh, look, I'd, I'd love to lead, like I'd love to be the CEO of a sporting organisation, um, probably a tier one sporting organisation. I'm really passionate about using sport um, and my leadership skills to really, you know, unite communities, you know, bring people together uh, and to drive social change. I think there's a sport does have a real responsibility in that space. So I'm really passionate about that. Um, you know, it's, it's, how the well, the path to there? I don't know what that looks like just yet, but you know, COO, COOs or um, heads of strategy, those sorts of roles, um, those are the sorts of things that I'm really passionate about. How can I have an influence and an impact on a business that leaves the same sort of legacy that I've left at the Sixers? Well, we've got you in here because you are a trailblazer, and and the path that you have, uh, the, the the trail, if you like, that you've you've blazed through, particularly sports administration has been quite extraordinary. Does that look different now to when you started out? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, think about it for a minute. <laughs> um, when I started out in sport, which was, yeah, 15, 20 odd years ago, um, there were very few, if any, women in senior mm. roles. Uh, we mainly occupied sort of the traditional media management, HR type roles, um, some sponsorship type roles. So, um, and I started off in rugby league. So, um, yeah, it looked completely different to, to what it looks now. I'd never change a thing, though. That, that what I've learned over the journey um, has really made me the leader that I am now, um, really understanding of especially of the athlete um, mm. and what they need to, to be successful. Um, and I cannot play sport to save my life. I have zero <laughs> sporting skills. Um, but being able to sit back and observe it over time, you really understand that, that – um, athletes, they need all the technical work, but they also need that emotional support. They need to feel safe to a certain point. It's a, as you've pointed out, it's not the, the world's safest job. Um, <laughs> you can be dropped in a heartbeat. Um, things can, things can happen along the way. Seasons get shut down. Um, budgets get cut. All those sorts of things happen. Um, so creating that sort of safe environment to a point is, is what I've really learned over the time. And, 
um, I think, you know, to a point women are, can be better at that. Um, and that's th that sort of skill set. That's why diversity is so important in leadership is because that mixed range of skill allows your, your business to, to really thrive um, when you're bringing in those different sorts of personality traits. Well, you dropped in a lovely segue for me there. Next up, we speak to Jodie Hawkins about her sporting background. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. We're chatting with sports administrator Jodie Hawkins. Where did your love of sports start? Uh, I think I just watched a lot of it as a kid growing up. We watched a lot of rugby league. My dad is a St George Dragons supporter. Somehow I was a Balmain Tigers supporter. Um, <laughs> very well known for jumping ship. I went to school in the high school in the Shire. So then I was a, a wow. Sharkies supporter. And then I went to <laughs> oh, work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah honestly. Uh, I'm not exactly through thick and thin. Um, I'm definitely a bandwagon jumper or, or who pays me. So then I went to the Eels because I worked at the Eels and then the Roosters. I've stuck with the Roosters though, I think, because I know, I still know so many people who work there and who play there mm. um, that you tend to stick once you've got that emotional connection, which is really what sport's about. It's about creating that emotional connection. That's why I love it. Um, it's something that you can be passionate about. But yeah, just watched a lot of sport as a kid. Um, as I mentioned, never really played it. Um, but yeah, spent a lot of time watching, used to go with the fanatics to the Sydney test and sit on, on Gabba's <laughs> Hill, um, which might show my age, but, um, <laughs> not to me, <laughs> but yeah, just always really enjoyed it. Um, and so I knew that's where I wanted to go from a career point of view. I'm a big believer that if you, if you love what you do, you don't, you'll never work a day in your life. So it's cliched, but it's so accurate. I love that adage. It's uh, it's yeah. so very true. Now I'm picturing you with a watermelon in your head at the SCG. <laughs> tell, tell me you got dressed up. I definitely got dressed up. No watermelons. Um, I think that's definitely a big bash innovation. Um, <laughs> and that guy will probably never live that down. Um, but yeah, got in, got dressed in the t-shirt. Typical thing. Turned up at nine o'clock at the Captain Cook Hotel. Trotted across the road to the SCG. Oh, all dressed girl. up in my, my yellow t-shirt. <laughs> and had a great day. I just really, really loved it. And funnily enough, I used to go with girlfriends. So... Uh, we talk a lot about how test cricket has a traditionally, you know, older male audience. Mm. Um, not necessarily the case. You know, I'm a, I'm a all-format lover. I, I'm not um, specifically a T20 person. I love all formats of the cricket. Of, of cricket. Um, and, yeah, used to attend with girlfriends. Well, there's something about uh, summers and test cricket, though, isn't there? I know it's become the domain, particularly in January, February, of Big Bash. But there's something very calming and peaceful about test cricket isn't it yeah it's funny it's 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 almost the sound of of a cricket match you know I'll always stick it on the tv yep. whenever it's on <laughs> and then potter around the house doing whatever it is I need to do or you put it on at work and you it's not something you need to sit there and watch for eight hours you can hear it and then you know engage in the bits that you want to engage with that's the thing I like I think people think they've got to sit there for eight hours absolutely fixed to what's going on on the field mm. and some people love doing that but others really just enjoy the sound of it. It's funny, my mum is not a fan, so I'd we'd get in the car and I'd put on the ABC to listen. Yep. <laughs> and she's like, oh, God, this reminds me of when your grandfather used to drive me around. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> it's a great Hello. sound. And she's like, I've got to remember not, not to get in the car with you during <laughs> during the summer holidays. But it's just that sound of summer. It's It really is. It's something, you know that you can go go down and play at the beach. I remember we used to go away for Australia Day every year with a group of friends and in the backyard on Australia Day you would play cricket yeah. um, or you'd go down to the beach and play cricket. Like That's what everyone did. Um, and it's one of those beautiful sports. I think we often get caught up that it's very organised and you need a lot of equipment. But really to play it casually, 
you know, a garbage bin, a stick and a tennis ball and you're nailed. Yep. <laughs> and it's just who gets to make the rules, right? Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> we had some cracking rules when I was growing up and I was just always out. I want to be six and out. <laughs> Never, ever happened. Uh, when you went through school, what did you think you wanted to do as a I, career? I was going to be a vet. Oh, okay. Which is hilarious well, because, <laughs> yeah, really just managed to align that beautifully. Um which is hilarious because science is is not my strength. I, I think I did biology <laughs> for about a week and then switched to legal studies because the idea of cutting things up was was not going to be what I wanted to do. So, so what you're saying is you like dogs? Yeah, I cats. like dogs and cats <laughs> yeah. to pat and, you know, um, take care of as opposed to heal necessarily. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I jumped out of that pretty quickly once I realised biology, not my, not my strong point, um, and moved into PR and I think – that's that was kind of the area that I thought would be really good and and um, PR is a lot of fun. Mm. Um, it's a lot of hard work, but it's a lot of fun, uh, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, for me, my core skill is is communicating with people. It's building relationships, and that's really what PR is. Um, so probably about year ten, I decided that's kind of what I wanted to do, and I did work experience at a PR agency. Um, I had a brief fling with being a nurse. But again, you really wanted to care for people oh, yeah. and, and things, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> just not not the blood and guts part. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, just just went back into PR, and that's kind of yeah how my the, the early parts of my career panned out. So, where was your first gig? Uh, I worked at Bridge Climb. So I was um, I used to dress and undress people uh, before they climbed the Sydney Harbour Bridge. That's nurse like. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on the group coming through. <laughs> You also had to breathalyze everyone, and there's a multitude of very funny stories, including breathalyzing ourselves some mornings after a big night out the night before. Um, but yeah, we so I started at Bridge Climb in in their sort of operational side, and then after I finished studying, I went into their PR department, um, and I would always try and find ways to get sports clubs or, or athletes mm. to come and climb the bridge, and that's effectively how the door opened up to to moving into sport. Um, and it was, I used to organise some, um, some talent to come and climb with, uh, through the Parramatta Eels, through yep. Bonnie Hindmarsh. Mm -hmm. um, and I took over her first maternity role, uh, maternity leave role. So that's how I kind of got into sport back in 2006. Wow. How many times did you climb the bridge? I couldn't actually tell you. I've <laughs> lost count. <laughs> but it's so much fun. Like, because there's a range over the over my time there, um, they really diversified out how many climbs they would be doing. So then the dawn climb turns up, which is great, but it's a three thirty start in the morning, mm -hmm. so that you're on the on the arch by the time they only run it in summer because it's way too cold in winter. Then they do twilight climbs and night climbs. So you got to when you're talking about it to the press, you've obviously got to experience it all, yeah. and then you go and take press up there and. Um, so yeah, I've done it a lot of times, but it, it's it, an incredible experience and something every Sydney sider should do. Absolutely, the the views are stunning. Just make sure you pick your weather correctly. Yes, yeah, probably book a little closer to the time you want to climb instead of months out. Yeah, <laughs> would be my hot tip. And not at dawn. I'm told it's the most beautiful time of day, but I've got issues with that. <laughs> not a morning person. Uh, so you moved into PR. You spent time in rugby league mm -hmm. uh, with. Exclusively with the Eels? So I was with the Eels for a year uh, and I worked in both PR and event management mm -hmm. and then moved across to the Roosters and I spent four years at the Roosters as the, um, I think, media and PR manager was my title there, but yeah, effectively the media manager for the Roosters for, for four years. So this was pre-NRLW working with a multitude of sweaty blokes. Mm -hmm. uh, what did it teach you? 
Uh, it teaches you how to present in front of people and not be intimidated. I remember the first time I had to address the Parramatta Eels was um, at their fan day. Uh-huh. And so you're trying to work, explain to them what's going to happen and how you're going to break up into groups. They had just finished a training session. So most of them were sitting there just having showered in a towel. <laughs> and I'm a 25-year-old girl working in there going, okay, um, I need everyone to break into groups of four. <laughs> so did you look at the floor or the ceiling? <laughs> uh, always look up, never look down. Um, that is always my hot tip in any change room, always look up. Um, and just, yeah, I guess from then on, you just, you really learn how to stand on your own two feet and that you, you have to hold your own because the second you give an inch, they will take a mile. <laughs> so just really own what you're there for, um, be really confident um, and just, and also realise if they're going to heckle, it's usually not about you. It's just about them being funny in front of the boys. It's a bit of that pack mentality and I've been pretty lucky not to be exposed to anything horrendous but a lot of you know funny jibes over the years Mm. um you just don't take it personally Uh, and sometimes you've got to give as good as you get yeah keeping a sense of humor right absolutely (laughs) absolutely so you said you went to the roosters is that how you ended up at cricket did you just decide you liked more park (laughs) (laughs) it is close to home so i am partial to not having to drive too far um but yeah it's funny because i've uh, there are i know there are people at the scg who still have my number in their phone is Jody Roosters. Um, I know there are media who still have my number in their phone as Jody Roosters because I have been in the precinct for so long. Even sometimes security are like, oh, Roosters or Sixes? Or I'm like, Sixes, <laughs> definitely Sixes. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that precinct. It's such a great place to, to watch sport. Um, it's a great place to work. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm also, am now familiar with every exit, um, that doesn't come out the front door, um, <laughs> <laughs> which has always been very handy. Oh, if it makes you feel better, you're on my phone as Jode's Sixes. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Clearly a more current contact. <laughs> uh, now sport, as we've mentioned, it, it's often a male domain and you worked in two very, uh, male dominated uh, areas. Did you find there was aspects of being a female that actually helped you? Oh, Absolutely. Um, I think, and it's funny, sometimes um, male athletes will still apologise for swearing uh, and I have possibly the worst potty mouth of ev- of anyone, um, although my friends tell me it has gotten better over the years. Um, so it's, it's funny to watch them apologise. I think they are really generally quite respectful um, mm. of the fact that you're there. Um, and once you show that you're there to, to make life easier for them um, and to really help them, it changes the dynamic of your relationship. And then as GM, being female, you know, and being able to have that empathy and understanding of what, um, you know, some of the more emotional support that people need, mm. it because you do bring that different skill set, there is a, a different level of respect there. So I've found in many ways it's actually been really beneficial to be female. Um, you know, you don't get that blokey, blokey treatment, although sometimes I do, but think they forget um, especially on some of our group chats they do forget that I'm there <laughs> and then they're like oh dear and I'm like is that honestly, a compliment though <laughs> yeah and I don't mind it I you know for me the those relationships and the relationships with the players specifically are really important because they're the people who we're putting up every day in front of media in front of fans in packed venues you want to be able to get the best out of them and you want them to know that you've got their back um, so those are the relationships that I've really spent the most time nurturing. Um, and I've, you, you get so much back from it when you, when you mm. do build that kind of relationship with them, you get so much back. Well, that nurturing role came to the fore during the COVID bubble. You mentioned the 65 days on the road. 
What was that really like? It sounds torturous. Uh, yeah, it it was probably, it, it sounds a lot worse than in the end it was, um, but I also think we were very lucky with the group that we had. We all get along mm. um, really, really well. Um, I'd also come out of doing, just doing two and a half weeks in the WBBL bubble, which was significantly tighter. So we weren't allowed to really eat out. Um, we had to, we had security on the door. So every time we left the hotel complex, even just to go for a walk, to go to training, to go to a game, it was like security were making sure you were doing the right thing. So we'd come from this really restrictive bubble. And what I learned in that WBBL bubble was about communication. Mm. Communication was going to be critically important to get through the BBL bubble because some stuff does not make sense. Mm. It doesn't make sense. There's not been a case of COVID in Tasmania since May last year. <laughs> But we still had to wear masks every time we went inside. It doesn't make sense. What mm. needed my explanation to the, the male players was, if it doesn't cha dramatically change your world, then let's just run with it. A lot of it has to do with crossing borders and yeah. less to do with catching COVID. And that's really what the Big Bash Bubble became about. Mm. It was about how do we cross all the borders that we need to, as opposed to how do we not catch COVID? Because there wasn't enough COVID really floating around the community, aside from in Sydney, and that's why we didn't end up back in Sydney for that middle period, mm. um, that we really had to worry about catching COVID. So for the most part, once we got into the big bash bubble, we were able to go out and eat as a group, but you could only eat with your hub people. Right. Um, but you had to be outside because um, there's obviously less chance of catching COVID outside. There's a lot of things I learned about COVID. The most important one being that at nine o'clock the day after the Big Bash final, COVID no longer exists and you can go and do whatever you like. Magic, is isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of fantastic. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think that the group dynamic that we had in that boys squad, especially the men's mm. squad, was, it was really incredible. Everyone was in it together. Um, everyone was supportive of each other. Um, and they were supportive of me as much as I was supportive of them. Um, and it was because I, at one point I felt like the Grinch. So I had to tell all of our Sydney players and staff, they couldn't have their family in for Christmas because the, the Northern Beaches cluster had of blown course. up. Mm. Um, we had a whole range of things, even just trying to get people in a, who had been out of Sydney for a certain period was a nightmare. So, and, and as we got closer to the end, things got further and further locked down because, you know, our, um, medical staff just weren't willing to really take any chances when we were so close to the end so you, I, at one point I literally said I'm the Grinch that stole Christmas I keep all I do is give everyone bad news and it really started to weigh on me and I think you know the players and staff could see that as well and they knew that they had to keep reassuring me as much as I was reassuring them so we we're kind of all in it together and you mm. do become a family and when we got back to Sydney we had a week in Sydney before the final not once did anyone ask to go home no one asked to breach the bubble and everyone just stuck together because we knew that was the way to get us through and allow mm. us to have success in that final. The mental health side of it, was that the toughest challenge, apart from all the physical and logistical inconveniences? Was that the hardest hurdle for most people? Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, even in hindsight, it's probably impacted people differently when you sit back and look at it. Um, you know, we do a survey at the end of every season and some some of the feedback was that, it was great because, you know, one of the questions in there was, if we had to do this again, what would you change? And some of the feedback was, oh, it was great, you know, totally fine, would happily do that again. Some of it was like, I can never be in that circumstance ever again. And, and mm. in hindsight, it's really interesting that people reflect on it really differently. Um, but it is critically important. And, you know, you, you tend to know after spending so much time with people, you tend to know who the, the player's prone to 
you know, mental well-being and, and that those who need some support in that kind of space are. So you, you work out the body language and you just watch what goes on and then you're able to provide that support as they kind of need it. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Jodie Hawkins is our trailblazer today. Jodie, your role probably culminated in that enormous job managing that bubble. But when you were first made GM, did you realise how significant that was? Uh, no. And I think because at the time um, I'd been working under Dom Raymond, who was the previous general manager, and Andrew Jones was the CEO. And they were both so supportive of me. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the time that they invested in me to get me to that point. They both wanted me to be successful. So they both wanted me to be successful in that role. So when I was given that role, I, I, it felt like a natural progression for me. And I didn't probably realise there are so few women who mm. take on those sorts of roles. Um, so I didn't really feel like it was that significant because I felt like I was being groomed for that role in the organisation. And were they your key mentors or did you have uh, other ones outside of the, the cricket world? Uh, they've, they've probably been my key mentors, especially through that sort of period. Um, there are definitely a heap of people that I've called on for advice over the years. Um, so it's really hard to put my finger on one or two. But the other thing I, I, I was also lucky enough to have in the transition, both coming into that role and through that first period of that role, was um, they provided me with a business coach. And, you know, you talk to athletes all the time about, you know, what other coaching are you doing? How are you investing in yourself personally outside of the infrastructure at work um, or in their training programs? And this is the same for for anyone working in an industry. You know, what else are you doing to help make, you know, grow your own skill set, really equip yourself Mm -hmm. for that sort of, that level of of responsibility. And I was really lucky um, to find a great business coach who I still work with to this day, um, who's really helped me frame up how I want to be a leader, how I want to manage expectation. You know, I had really high blood pressure because I tend to um, (laughs) take a lot of things in and and it's very much a work-related piece. I'm a perfectionist. I, I don't like... I mean, the stuff that I could tell you about trying to match magenta on print, <laughs> on clothing, on every, everyone used to laugh because I was literally, I would get out squares and make sure they all match because it bleeds into paper differently than it bleeds into fabric and all this crazy stuff. All and the things you've learned. Oh my word, that and grass. I've never learned so much about grass in my life. Um, but I had to learn to let things go. You have to, when you're a leader, you have to learn to delegate. You have to learn to empower. And part of that is letting go of some of those um, perfectionist type traits. Um, So I've really gotten, uh, I feel like I've gotten much better at at that sort of stuff. But it's not something that you can learn on your own. You really need someone, A, who can uh, help you, help educate you on on those sorts of things. And I became a lot more self-aware working with a coach. Um, But you also need a, a person in the workplace so which is which is what Dom was for me to pull me up as I was learning that behavior or or learning to to adjust that behavior um, to really pull me up in the workplace when I was getting a little bit pedantic and and just sort of say (laughs) you're doing it again you need to rein that back in so yeah I felt very lucky to have that sort of support over that period too do you have a wardrobe full of matching magenta I do (laughs) 
so much magenta, it's not funny. And now I've, I'm like, well, where am I going to wear this? And then am I going to, if I wear this everywhere now, is everyone going to go, oh, she's just can't let go of the sixes. And I'm like, <laughs> I actually really like the colour, so <laughs> I'm going to wear it anyway. But, yes, I've got skirts, I've got shoes, I've got shirts, I've got jackets, I've got coats. It's quite unbelievable how much magenta I've got in my wardrobe. Oh, that is outstanding. Uh, you help build an amazing brand, if you like, at the Sixes. And we talk about brands normally in the in the way of uh, commercial viability. How did you find the balance to create something really sustainable that wasn't just about money, it was about inclusion and uh, social awareness and all those sorts of things? How challenging was that? Uh, it can be really challenging if you don't have the right support around you. And I guess, you know, when we started going down this, this path of inclusion, um, I, I was really conscious to make sure everyone was on board. Mm. I didn't want an Israel Folau situation. Mm -hmm. So I made sure our players were on board, especially with the LGBT work that we were um, going into. Um, it made sense for us to go into into that space, given, you know, where we are in Sydney. Did you how... forget to tell the Tars how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do feel sorry for how that situation panned out. But... Um, yeah, I was really careful to make sure, like, if this is something that we wanted to do, it had to be truly something that the whole of organisation wanted to do. When we built our club values, we built them in consultation. So I didn't sit there as the leader and say, these are our values. I don't really think that's the way um, value building should work. It mm. should be something that people buy into. So that's what I did with our playing groups uh, and our coaches and our staff. We went through like, what are the things that are important to you? What are the above and below the line behaviours that are really important to you? And we built our values from there. And it was pretty clear that people had a really strong appetite for inclusion. Mm. Um, and then it's finding that blend between, you know, you want to do work that has an impact on society. It has the ability to drive change, but it also has to make sense to the business. So, you know, the LGBT plus community have an incredible disposable income. That's, you know, that's an important part of, of working with the community, mm. as is increasing participation. Um, we want to get more people from the community involved in sport. It's good for the sport. It's good for health. Um, it's good for a feeling of community, which is really what sport's about, is about that feeling of community. Um, and it's good for society. It's the right thing for society. So you really need to find things that, that blend into your organisation that everyone's committed to, but also make sense from a business point of view as much as they do from that social point of view. When you talk about in inclusion, when people think of cricket, they probably also think of the massive rise of the WBBL. Now, you saw that from inception. That was absolutely extraordinary. How do you remember that uh, trajectory? Uh, yeah, it's something I'm really proud of. Um, we were pretty, we at Cricket New South Wales were pretty passionate about launching the WBBL in Sydney um, and we pretty much drove that from Cricket Australia's point of view um, and I was super like but to the point of I went and got the um, playing shirts tailored to suit women because we didn't want it to just be I love you oh, I just <laughs> you put the men's shirts on there. enormous and we hadn't our stock hadn't arrived at that point we launched it obviously earlier in the year and our stock hadn't arrived so, you know, I ran around town getting eight shirts machine? tailored. Oh. <laughs> I'm not that good. <laughs> no creative bone like that. But they um, would have really appreciated that. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it just it showed that we were actually committed to making this. This isn't, you know, painting the women's game in the men's colour. This mm. is about, you know, using really the BBL to, to elevate the WBBL, to elevate that women's game. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I think it was WBBL 04, standing on the hill at Dremoyne Oval with mm. a sold-out sign-up. Wow. I, I've never been so proud of being able to achieve something 
um, as to being a really integral part of making that happen. It was just so satisfying because everyone's like, oh, no one's going to turn up. And, and we were charging that year. So part of the um, part of the strategy, especially in New South Wales, was we need to build a behaviour into the Women's World Cup. People need to buy tickets, that we need to make sure that there is value assigned with this. We did not lose a single crowd number when we mm -hmm. started charging for, charging for entry. Um, and it just goes to show that there is such an appetite for women's sport out there. It's not necessarily the same appetite in the same market as, as the men's game, but that's great because what sport should do and what cricket has the beauty of is it, it's kind of got something for everyone. Yeah. So you can watch, you know, this year there's going to be two women's test matches, mm. two in one summer. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, it's just it, to see how far women's sport in general, but very specifically the WBBL has come over the six years, has been just beautiful. Um, and my nephew's now, so one of the grounds that the Sixers women play out of is Hurstville, mm -hmm. which is where I near where I grew up. So my, my nephew's come down with my brother and sister-in-law and they have no concept of men's and women's cricket. Mm. It's just cricket. Mm. And they asked me to get their shirt signed by the girls and the boys, very specifically, it's by both. Um, and that's the beautiful thing, right? That's what we're trying to bring in, which is this generational change of what is men's and women's and just what is sport. And we really want that generation coming through to understand that sport is sport and men play it and women play it. Um, and to see that start to happen, that behaviour start to change is really incredible to watch. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Jodie Hawkins, you're a trailblazer in your field. I think one of the interesting things about your time at the Sixers is you started off probably handling a lot of very famous names on the men's side. Some of the women just got elevated to that same level. How different was that to handle superstars in either gender? Uh, I've always tried to, I've tried to approach it the same way. At the end of the day, they're athletes. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're the most well-known or the least well-known on the list. Um, everyone has a responsibility to do a certain, you know, to, to do a certain amount of work to keep the sport alive and to, mm. and to build the brand and to build the sport. Um, so I've, I have been lucky to work with some incredibly big names, but I wouldn't say I've ever really worked with any real divas. I've been, you know... It, Players have um, different approaches and you can't, like when you're managing anyone, mm -hmm. you can't approach everyone the same way. Management's not about how you want to manage someone, it's about how they want to be managed. So people have different buttons that you need to press and you need to find what those buttons are in each of those athletes. But as long as you approach each person with respect um, of who they are mm. and what they can bring to the sport, and you also don't, you know, one of the... Everyone wants Elise Perry or Elisa Healy. Mm. And at some point you have to say, well, no, because there are 13 other players in this squad. There are nine other players on the field. Mm. You know, we need to share the load. Mm. I think as long as you're doing those things that are in the best interest of the, the athlete, recognising similar to what happened, what's happened recently with Naomi Osaka and yeah. her um, reluctance to deal with the media because of her mental health, sometimes you just have to accept that that is part and parcel of it. And treating people with respect, no matter no matter their profile, mm. is incredibly important. Let's go completely left field. You're also director on the board of Judo Australia. Uh, is that because of your extensive uh, wrestling background? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> and everyone on the board still laughs at me because I don't even quite know the terminology <laughs> that they use. Um, but it's been an incredible experience, especially to see how an Olympic sport works. Um, very different 
to, I guess, a tier one sport that I've always worked in. Um, and really different, um, a different level of, of staffing. Being on the board of a smaller sport has really allowed me to get more, I guess, under the covers and, and understand what happens. Um, and I've really enjoyed the experience. It's really interesting watching the, you know, especially the Olympic cycle and how all of that works. Um, I've been involved in the, the risk framework. So you, you go from a big sport where risk is something that you're looking at every day, it's just part and parcel of what you do. You know, we have to do risk assessments at venues. We have to do risk assessments at training grounds and all those sorts of things. And and then you go into a sport that, you know, they're really developing that skill set, but they also don't have, you know, 180 staff. We've mm. got sort of four staff that you're relying on. So um, being able to work in that environment, to work in a different sport, totally out of my comfort zone, has been a great experience. I've really enjoyed it. Is it difficult to make recommendations where you know that the resources to implement things you'd like to introduce that the resources are limited? I think you just need to be more targeted and more balanced in what you're recommending. Um, there's no point recommending, um, you know, uh, that we've got 35 risks in a risk framework when there's three, three, four staff who are there to oversee it. So what are the key things that we want to focus on? What are some of the, the things that we want to chip off? How do we roll it out over a number of years instead of how do we roll it out over the next 12 months? Mm. Um, it just forces you to, to look really differently at things and, and you need to scale like what is really critically important versus what's all the nice to, to have sort of stuff. It takes you back to what the core purpose of, of your organisation is. And if you can start applying that core purpose to those sorts of things, it gives you a really good filter to work out what are the, the critically important things you want to work on. If you talk about risk assessment, uh, you're off to Tokyo for the Paralympics. I'm so wildly envious. It is seriously one of my favourite events. The athletes are absolutely extraordinary. Uh, how are you feeling about uh, he heading into, into Tokyo and all the stories coming out of Japan? Um, I'm really excited. Um, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to be approached to um, to work in their media team, and I'm really excited about, you know, being able to to go over and and to be part of a Paralympics, to work mm. with some incredible athletes, um, and yet yeah, just to be in an Olympic village and to sort of see how all of that sort of that stuff rolls out. My nephew did; he was a bit worried when I told him that I was going the other day. He's seven, and he said, "Oh." you know, I'm not sure I'm, I want you to leave the country. Um, and I was like, oh, that's that's really cute, but I promise you I'll be fine. Um, you know, I've got to be vaccinated Aww. before I go and I'll talk to you all the time. It'll be totally fine. So bless him. But I'm, I'm actually really excited. Um, you know, one of my only frustrations of, of being, you know, made redundant at this time is that I can't go and travel overseas and mainly stop mm. up in a villa in Bali for a month. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's an, it's an opportunity to go overseas, but it's an opportunity to be part of something really exciting um, and a once in a lifetime sort of, um, you know, feeling and, and uh, ability to go and, you know, see the sort of Paralympics. They, they keep saying to me, oh, it won't be different. It won't be the same as normal. You won't be able to go to the, the cafeteria. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. So <laughs> I'm probably the perfect person to be coming over this year. Um, and they're all about, you know, it's obviously it's going to be bubbled. And I'm like, yep, I'm all good with bubbles. I'm a professional um, bubbler. I feel like I was, <laughs> you know, I was being prepared for this. So I think it's going to be a really great opportunity. I'm very, very excited about attending. You're just such a busy person, even in uh, pseudo-redundancy, which I can't believe is going to last more than five minutes. Uh, you just have, have so much going on. How do you relax? Ooh, um, 
I relax with friends and family, really. That's that's the way I enjoy some downtime, being able to sit around with friends or, or family and, and have a bit of a chat and have a meal. That's the stuff I really enjoy doing. That's my downtime. That and a bit of exercise, which I know sounds cliche, but when you've done next to nothing for 12 months, it's kind of nice to get out and get back into to fitness and eating better. So they're the things that I really do to relax, which has been what's so great about this period at the moment is that I've got time to do it. I don't have to try and rush and do it on a weekend. When there's school sport, a lot of my friends are married with kids. You know, I want to take time during the week to, to spend some time with them and to spend some time with, with their younger kids. Go and watch cricket. Really what a great idea. Well, yeah. <laughs> I did say to the nephews, I'll be able to come and sit with you and watch the cricket with you this year. Um, so, and that'll be really nice. It'll be really nice to, to sit in the stands and watch from the other side. I did though say to both the men's and the women's team, if you're lifting that trophy, I will be knocking on your door to, <laughs> to come into the sheds and I expect to be let in at least for one more year. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice to be able to uh, take time uh, to do those things. But I can't imagine over all those years with the Sixers, uh, despite all these incredible things you achieved, you didn't have a whole bunch of fun. You spent so many Christmases and New Year's with these teams. Uh, <laughs> did you get a chance to just really enjoy the moment? Yeah, it's been honestly the most fun I've had working with, with the Sixers, with the admin staff, with the playing groups. Um, we had, you know, as you said, we've had New Year's Eves together. We've had Christmases together. Um, they do really become family. Um, and with that, you know, the good and the bad bits of family. But for, for the most part, it's just, it's been a really great, fun 10 years. And I really look back on it fondly. Um, just great experiences, even before being locked away together for COVID. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, uh, I think back to some of the fun stuff that we've done, you know, um, after the women lost the WBBLO4 final mm -hmm. and just we, we had an apartment in the toaster overlooking the, the Harbour Bridge with fireworks. It was just in, incredible experiences and stuff that I'll never, ever get to do again, which is really sad. Um, even just sitting on the bench, watching a game mm -hmm. of cricket and listening to, you know, there's, there's people I love sitting on the bench next to because they really talk you through the game. You can see the notes they're making. It really helps broaden your understanding of the game. That Even that has been incredibly fun over the years. And look, I've, I've got to work with some pretty amazing people, some huge names in, in Australian cricket, especially at the moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, you get to see the side of them that other people don't get to see, which is the fun-loving, you know, sometimes moody, um, <laughs> but, you know, that fun-loving, friendly side that they have. You have worked with some uh, huge names and I imagine that you've had opportunity to meet some seriously famous, in inverted commas, uh, people as well. Who do you reckon is the most famous person you've ever met? Oh, um, that's a really good question. I I've probably met more famous people working at Bridge Climb, to be fair. I did <laughs> of course. put Pierce Brosnan on the a bridge. I would have met Justin Timberlake did you, and did Cameron Did you dress Diaz. and undress Pierce Brosnan? Sorry, I've got to be did, asked. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> did. Um, yeah, I dressed... Cameron Diaz and um, and Justin Timberlake back in the day as well. So, wow. um, but uh, cricket wise, I, I do remember we went to the Champions League in 2012 in South Africa, and mm. I remember walking into the bar. So everyone in Johannesburg stays at these two hotels in Santon, 
um, and they're connected with a mall and, and a bar. And you go down to the bar at night. And I just remember seeing like Emma Stoney, Jacques Callis, um, Brett Lee, all these huge names in cricket and thinking, oh, my God, if you were cricket nuffy, you'd be in absolute heaven. So I'd be sending emails back to the family. And I'm like, yeah, just had a beer with um, Mahela J. Wardner. And uh, <laughs> my cousin's like, that's so unfair. You don't even appreciate how amazing that is. But one person I was, I've been lucky enough to work with and it was such a short period but we had Jason Holder with us this year who is possibly one of the nicest humans going around to the point where he keeps in contact now he played three games for us these guys don't need to do that Mm. um just genuinely enjoyed his experience gave everything when he's here um and has kept in contact because he's just that kind of person who's got a great heart so it's really lovely to meet you know you can meet all these big names but if they turn out to be horrible people, which thankfully in my case, for the most part, they haven't. But if they do, it can be really disappointing. And then you get a guy like Jason Holder come in who you're like, oh, God, this could be anything. Mm. And he was just incredible. So, you know, you, it's, I've, I feel very lucky to have met some of the people that I have met over the years. Jodie Hawkins, I think one of the nicest people going around could apply to you. Congratulations on a stellar knock with the Sixers. A wonderful career thus far. So much more still to come. So all the very best for what lies ahead in your future. I cannot wait to see what you do next. Thank you for being today's Trailblazer. Thank you for having me.